here you are. BPMs high, sweat dripping, body moving, tongue panting. You're working hard, real hard, and you're thirsty. You need vitamins, nutrients for peak performance and energy. And your plants do too. Aw, let me just look at the little guy. Water-soluble plant food from miracle Grow is full of essential nutrients. Just a little scoop into your watering can and boom, instant feeding and bigger, more beautiful plants. It's kind of like a sports drink for your plants. You may have to suffer from heat, but your plants do not. Tonight on The Readout. You say they weaponized the Justice yeah. Department, they weaponized the FBI. Would you do the same if you're reelected? If they do this, they've already done it. But if they want to follow through on this, uh, yeah, it could certainly happen in reverse. It could certainly happen in reverse. What they've done is they've released the genie out of the box. First off, man, genies come out of bottles, not boxes. That aside, Trump has been openly admitting his authoritarian vision for America. But top Republicans in Congress are still aiding and enabling him, including a frivolous new ethics complaint against the judge in Trump's New York fraud trial. Also tonight, author Brian Stelter joins me on his new book about Fox, Network of Lies. If you think the worst was over when Tucker was fired, think again. And three distinguished religious leaders join me tonight, each from a different faith. We're going to have a tough but very necessary discussion about the Israel-Gaza conflict and how to begin a constructive dialogue about solutions. And a happy Veterans Day to all who served. We begin tonight with the further embrace of Donald Trump's desire to be more like the authoritarian leaders he so publicly admires. Russian President Vladimir Putin, Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban, and the recipient of his many, many, many love letters, North Korean leader Kim Jong-un. That was on display last night when, in an interview with Univision, the twice-impeached, four-times-indicted former president took a page from their strongman playbook, warning that if he wins a second term, he would be justified in using the powers of the presidency to weaponize the FBI and the DOJ against his perceived enemies. Of course, there's no evidence as Trump repeatedly claims that President Biden or the deep state boogeyman are behind his indictments, which include 91 combined federal and state charges. But as we've seen with Trump and his authoritarian buddies, actual evidence is just a formality. Trump's remarks come just days after The Washington Post reported that Trump told advisors and friends that if he won next year, he would unleash his DOJ to go after his perceived enemies list, a la Richard Nixon, which would include some of his own former White House officials. Trump's DOJ would function with the express purpose of indicting, imprisoning, and punishing anyone who opposed him. Trump repeatedly also wants to, in, reportedly also wants to invoke the Insurrection Act on his first day in office to allow him to deploy the military against civil demonstrations. This is more than just Trump's usual bluster. The Washington Post also notes that to facilitate Trump's ability to direct Justice Department actions, his associates have been drafting plans to dispense with 50 years of policy and practice intended to shield criminal prosecutions from political considerations. Last night, President Biden warned supporters at a Chicago fundraiser, folks, the same man who said we should terminate rules and regulations and articles of the Constitution is now running to end democracy as we know it. He's not even hiding it. He added that Trump's actions are all about revenge and retribution. Those are two things that motivate any wannabe dictator. And when, and even when Trump gets compared to one of the worst autocratic leaders in world history, Adolf Hitler, he appears to see it as a compliment. 
at least according to a new book by ABC News chief Washington correspondent Jonathan Carl. Carl writes about how Trump bragged to a member of Congress about what former German Chancellor Angela Merkel, not a fan of Trump, told him that she was amazed by the number of people who came to see him speak. And Trump said, she told me that there was only one other political leader who ever got crowds as big as mine. The Trump-allied congressman knew who Merkel was comparing Trump to, but couldn't tell if Trump, who took Merkel's words as a compliment, himself understood. A Trump campaign aide denied the account. It's not the first time that that name has been brought up with Trump. Trump reportedly once told his White House chief of staff, John Kelly, that Hitler did a lot of good things. This was when the two were on a visit to Europe in 2018 to mark the 100th anniversary of the end of the First World War, according to a book by The Wall Street Journal's Michael Bender. Trump also reportedly questioned to Kelly why his generals couldn't be as totally loyal to him as the German generals were to Hitler, according to a book by The New York Times' Peter Baker and The New Yorker's Susan Glasser. And according to a 1990 interview with Trump's then-wife Ivana, she divulged that he kept a book of Hitler's speeches near his bed. Quite the bedtime reading material, if you ask me. Joining me now is Michael Steele, former RNC chair, MSNBC political analyst and host of the Michael Steele podcast. And Jill Weinbanks, former assistant Watergate special prosecutor and an MSNBC legal analyst. Thank you uh, all for being here. And, you know, there's the Hitler, Hitler, what is it? Hitler ab absurdum, uh, I think is the term when you invoke Hitler so much that it becomes absurd. But with Trump, he seems to be into it, Michael. Yeah, I mean, it's the whole authoritarian thing. I mean, I don't think he really distinguishes. I mean, I think that last uh, point uh, with Ivana, you know, his former wife, um, sort of says it all. I mean, that's she's saying that, yes, yeah, by his bedside, bedside you kind of go, oh, really? All right. That's <laughs> that's interesting. So he doesn't make these distinctions the way the rest of us do. He's not put off by that comparison. Um, And this is not just, you know, us here at MSNBC saying this. These are people who are around him who are writing about this and telling this side of his story. So we got to take it at face value because I ain't in his bedroom, so I don't know what's on his bedside. So if his wife says that's what's there, guess who I'm going to believe? Right. So there's all of these storylines that come out about him that fill in the pieces that a lot of us thought were possibly true or maybe curious about what we're realizing now that this guy does have this particular complex and there's a chance he could be back in the Oval Office. And we know what that means. Exactly. And that's the point, uh, Jill, is that we know what it means because he's telling us, right? He he doesn't actually have a filter. And so what he's basically saying is, I'm going to go ahead and arrest anyone that is in my way. I'm going to arrest people using the Insurrection Act uh, for trying to protest. He's already now said on his Truth Social that the only fraud was committed by Letitia James, who was, of course, prosecuting him and his company. And he's already been found guilty. She should be prosecuted. He's threatened the judge in that case. He's gone after his uh, aide. Any of those people, Jill, could be subject to arrest if he's president. And it's not a joke. He's saying he's going to do it. He says the quiet part out loud. He doesn't have a filter. He can't help himself. He said there are good people on both sides when the neo-Nazis marched in Charlottesville. He's telling us who he is and we should believe him. So this whole point of this is very frightening we should all be worried with what is happening now with the anti-Semitism rising and him 
taking on the role of an authoritarian leader who he praises. I mean, he's praised Viktor Orban. He says that he would solve everything in the world in Ukraine. Of course he would, because he would give Putin everything that Putin wants, because he admires Putin. So this is really bad for justice. His threat of an uh, enemies list is something I'm very familiar with. During Watergate, we know that President Nixon had an enemies list, mm -hmm. and he used the IRS to go after those people. He used things that even, he, he didn't use as many things as I think Donald Trump is now telling us he will use. He's saying he will use the Department of Justice. And although Nixon did, through his attorney general, try to use the Department of Justice, he never succeeded at that. We know that now that Bill Barr has said he's toast, Bill Barr is going to be one of the people he will go after. And we need to protect justice. We need to keep the Department of Justice separate from the White House. It cannot be allowed to mix yeah. in specific decisions. He's also said that Mark Milley should be put to death. And I think, yes. you know, there's a thing, Michael Steele, where people don't take Donald Trump seriously because he doesn't always seem fully corpus mentis. Uh, but and he doesn't remember where he is all the time. But he's very clear about retribution. And he has a political party that's willing to go along with it. Even people who used to be considered sort of normie Republicans. Witness Elise Stefanik, who used to, you know, Harvard girl, used to seem like a sort of weirdly, you know, conservative, moderate Republican. Uh, but here she is now accusing Judge Arthur and Goron of weaponized lawfare against Trump. She's called on the judge to recuse him. Himself, she's now filed an ethics complaint against him. Republicans are enabling this by essentially using the power of the federal government against federal judges. Your thoughts? Michael? Yeah. Well, at least Stefanik is just flat out wrong here. I mean, she has no grounds to do this. She has no basis. She can't. Where where was this judge and she? Where do they cross? What what is she talking about? She's not in the case. She doesn't. I bet she couldn't cite anything from the case right now. So this is all, again, performative. It's the level of performative BS to cloud the system, to grind it to a halt, to make people suspect of it, to make people distrust it, to make people think something nefarious is going on. This judge who's been sitting and serving for how long? Suddenly now, because Elise Stefanik has her nose out of joint because Donald Trump is getting his behind handed to him the way it should for his behavior. She's defending Donald Trump's behavior, right? By going after the judge. So we have to understand what's going on here and keep it in the context in front of us that this is performative. It is largely irrelevant to the course that the this trial is going to take. There are good lawyers in, involved here. There are good prosecutors involved here. Donald Trump presumably has hired the best to defend him. So, you know, Elise, just stand down, sis. You, we don't need you in that room. We don't need you in that room. Uh, you know, well, he's hired the best who got paid in advance that he could get after his other lawyers got <laughs> well, <there's> <laughs> The there best who had, who had indicted themselves, yeah. Uh, Jill, they you know, probably got the money in gold bars, right? You, you know that's right. Uh, um, Jill, you know, there is this idea of the, the MAGAs who are embedded, that he's embedded so many people in various places that can try to help save him, because this is all about saving himself, obviously. The judge in Florida, who we will not prejudge, she's seemed very pro-Trump before, she has issued a ruling here. She's put off the decision on whether to delay Trump's uh, trial. And this is in the documents case that even Bill Barr, Trump's former toady uh, attorney general, has said he's toast on. She's going to delay it. 
But here's the rub. The trial date right now is May 20. The trial date on the uh, other, the D.C. version of this case is in March. Where does the Georgia case fit in? In a sense, is she still seeming to sort of block for Trump by setting a date that kind of squeezes out the Georgia prosecution? Am I being too cynical? You are not being too cynical, Joy. I share your cynicism. It does seem like by saying, well, I won't decide till March 1st when we have another hearing, that she's holding that block of time so that Bonnie Willis's case cannot get scheduled in that time block. And then she might put it off till April. And then, of course, there's a May trial coming up that's supposed to go forward, but it's being held. So no one else can schedule anything in that time period. That does seem bad. And I think, you know, Eileen Cannon has shown who she is in her very first entree into this case when she issued a ruling that the 11th Circuit, very conservative circuit, said, you are so off and totally undid what she had done in trying to stop documents from being used by the government. So I think that we can probably say it's fair to say that she isn't an experienced judge and that she might be thinking, well, I can help him this way. I said when this first happened that I didn't expect her to grant his original motion to put it off until after the election, but that she would do it by a thousand cuts, a little bit here and a little bit there. Yeah. And let's keep in mind that the oldest judge uh, right now, I believe, on the Supreme Court is one Clarence uh, Get Money Tom, uh, Thomas. And uh, she's a young right wing judge. Uh, as Lawrence O'Donnell said, the bribe is implied. Michael Steele, Jill Weinbanks, thank you both very much. Up next on The Readout, an explosive new book takes us inside Fox's network of lies, exposing the dark heart of deception that drives their propaganda. Author Brian Stelter joins me when The Readout returns. Today and every day, Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood, which means affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. The right to control our bodies and get the health care we need has been stolen from us. And now, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills that would block people from getting the sexual and reproductive care they need. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves health care. It's a human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies and against policies that interfere with decisions between patients and their doctor. Planned Parenthood needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future. If the thought of Donald Trump returning to the White House isn't terrifying enough, this week Trump poured out more nightmare fuel when asked about his potential picks for vice president. Would you consider it's, it's t- Tucker, though, that they based on the I numbers? like Tucker a lot. I guess I would. I think I'd say I would because he's got great common sense. That would be former Fox host Tucker Carlson, whose common sense from his days bloviating over at Fox sounded like this. Our leaders demand that you shut up and accept this. We have a moral obligation to admit the world's poor, they tell us, even if it makes our own country poorer and dirtier and more divided. White supremacy, that's the problem. This is a hoax. 
just like the Russia hoax. It's a conspiracy theory used to divide the country and keep a hold on power. The left becomes unhinged if you point out that American voters are being replaced by Democratic Party loyalists from other countries. It might be worth asking yourself, since it is getting pretty serious, what is this really about? Why do I hate Putin so much? Has Putin ever called me a racist? Has he threatened to get me fired for disagreeing with him? A Trump Carlson ticket might also be a little you know, awkward uh, since we've learned this year in the final weeks of Trump's presidency in 2021. Tucker was texting about how he hated him passionately. We know that little insight into Tucker's feelings from private texts revealed during pretrial discovery in Dominion Voting Systems' massive defamation lawsuit against Fox. The network settled that suit in April to the tune of $787.5 million. Carlson was unceremoniously canned by Fox less than a week later, without much explanation from Tucker or Fox. A new book by journalist Brian Stelter digs into the circumstances of Carlson's firing and much more about Fox, including the network's role in radicalizing its viewers, promoting the big lie January 6th, and new insights about Donald Trump's indictments for efforts to overthrow the 2020 election, just to start. In Network of Lies, Stelter writes, with or without Carlson, Fox is the black widow at the center of the web of lies that perverts American politics. And Brian Stelter joins me now. Brian, good to see you. Um, let's go. Let, let me start with Tucker. I'm going to roll back to him for a second. Yeah. A few of the texts and you get into a lot of the texts. And here's the book uh, text about this is not how white men fight to a producer about a video of Trump supporters beating an Antifa kid on January 6th called Sidney Powell the C-word to an unnamed staffer saying, I hope she's punished, referred to Sidney Powell as the C-word to Brett Baer saying, I mean it, texted a producer, Sidney Powell's lying, effing B-word, called an unnamed Fox executive a C-word. Was his firing mainly because of his grossness toward other people? Or <laughs> was it, I don't know, go into hungry without authorization and other things you reveal. Right. Well, Joy, I'm a longtime viewer, first time guest. It's great to be on with you. I think you just <laughs> named you. three or four of the many reasons. I think there's a list of 10 or even 20 reasons why Carlson was eventually canned. I devote many chapters of the book to this because I think it is a mystery. And Carlson's been out there promoting conspiracy theories about why he was fired, blaming Dominion for it when there's just no evidence for that and lots of evidence against it. And the reality is this was a bad breakup. This was like, you know, a, a relationship that goes sour when one side has <laughs> has 20 reasons to dump the other side. The other side doesn't see it coming, but this was building for a long time. Lachlan and Rupert Murat decided it just wasn't worth it anymore. As one source said to me, his arrogance destroyed him. Tucker's arrogance destroyed him. One producer on the show said to me, we were burning too bright. We knew it wasn't going to last, and it didn't. Talk about a little bit, Fox, is sort of the inside that you get into about how they think uh, about why they wanted to put people like Sidney Powell on, why they wanted to put on the January 6th stuff and the sort of outrageous lies that they wound up getting sued for. I think it was a self-preservation instinct, right? Wanting to believe the lies, wanting to give hope, in this case, false hope, to millions of viewers. And it was driven largely by profits and, and ratings, a desire to keep the audience hooked at all cost. You know, there, there's examples you see in these Dominion filings, which was, I, I had to write this book because there were so many details in the Dominion papers that it demanded sure. someone write the book. You know, you have examples <laughs> of these producers and these hosts obsessed over the minute-by-minute -minute ratings. What they notice is, when we talk about voting irregularities, voter fraud, the ratings tick up. Now, look, I was at CNN nearly a decade. I didn't study the minute-by-minute minute ratings to figure <laughs> out which of my guests were the best and which of the guests were the worst. That, that, that is next-level engineering to keep the audience addicted. And ultimately, that is what drove so many of these falsehoods. You talk about the, the sort of black widow at the heart of our democracy. Lachlan Murdoch versus Rupert Murdoch. Is there any difference? Is there any directional change? Or does this just get worse? 
Rupert is much more of a newspaper man. He actually uh, believes he's a journalist at heart, and he detests Donald Trump. Uh, as a Murdoch family friend said to me, he can't believe we're going to end up with Trump as the nominee again. But then again, he doesn't seem to be doing much to try to stop it either. Lachlan Murdoch cares a lot less about politics. I'm told he personally is not a fan of Trump. He basically holds his nose like a lot of Republican Party establishment types. But again, he's not doing anything to stop the so-called Trump train. Lachlan cares a lot more about campaign ad spending at his stations than he cares about polling and things like that. So ultimately, you're not going to see Lachlan or Rupert do anything really to, to stop this coronation of Trump, even though, by the way, Trump complains about Fox all the time. He says Fox is out to get him, but that couldn't be further <laughs> from the truth. Yeah. Let me play a little bit of a montage about the way that Fox sounds now post-Tucker. Take a look. What does that leave you with? It leaves you with you need to make war to bring peace because you have a side that cannot change because then that means an admission that their beliefs have been corrupt all the time. So in a way, you have to force them sur to surrender. Or we but could make love, not war. Uh, I tried that once. Oh, we have an election. I had to go to a doctor. <laughs> right. election, yeah. what a no, elections idea. don't work. We know that. We know they don't work. I want to say something about Arab Americans mm. and about the Muslim world. We when I say we, I mean the West and Western technology have created the Middle East. We made them rich. We got that oil out of the ground. Our military protects all of these oil shipments flying around the world, making them rich. We fund their military. We respect their kings. We kill their terrorists. OK, but we've had it. We've had it with them. So that's Jesse. Wa uh, that was first Greg Gutfeld and then Jesse Waters. What did you learn in doing the research for this book? Uh, what is is it a bottom up thing? Is this the audience craves this and so Fox serves it? Or are they engineering this kind of sort of necrophilic attitude toward American culture and divisiveness? Um, mm. Are they engineering it or are they just taking in what their audience Wants. In the Roger Ailes era, it was top down. But now, as you said, it is bottom up. It is now driven by the audience. The audience is in charge, which is a scary prospect sometimes, even though I, I love our viewers right now, Joy. I think I, I agree <laughs> with your banner a moment ago. Jesse Waters has taken over as the Fox primetime extremist. They think they are, quote, respecting the audience. And that's the quote that comes up time and time again in the treasure trove of emails from 2020. They think they're respecting the audience by giving the audience what they want. But that's actually disrespectful. And you know what? It's hurt the GOP. Look at what happened in the off-year elections on Tuesday. I would argue sure. that Fox is actually sometimes hurting the Republican Party, that it thinks it's helping. And that's an interesting dynamic going into 2024. Absolutely. The book, here it is, Network of Lies, uh, the epic story <laughs> of Fox News. Donald Trump, we're gonna, we, we love books, so we're going to sell it. We're going to sell you, it Joy. and hold it up here. Please, everyone, read it. Brian Stelter, you're one of the best out there doing the thing. Thank you, man. Thanks. Um, and coming up, Cheers. And coming up on the readout, three religions share ties to land that is once again the scene of bloody conflict in the Middle East. I will talk with representatives of all three about how to end the hatred and violence after this. Hey, everyone. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater. And this is your wake up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. 
and you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. The conflicts that have come to define violence in the Middle East are disputes over land, certainly, but also about religion and the people who comprise each faith. But Jews, Christians, and Muslims actually have more in common than people think. The three religions trace their origins back to the same person, the prophet Abraham. Abraham is viewed as the father of the Jewish people and the first to make a covenant with the monotheistic God we think of today in Western religions. According to the covenant, God would offer protection and land to Abraham and his descendants. In Christianity, Abraham is the father of the faith. His intention to obey God by offering to sacrifice his son Isaac is seen as a foreshadowing of God's offering of his son, Jesus of Nazareth. The prophet Abraham, known to Muslims as Ibrahim, has a crucial role in Islamic belief as well. Muslims believe that he is one of the ancestors of the prophet Muhammad and trace their lineage to Abraham's first son, Ishmael. Think about it. Abraham is a point of unity for all three of these religions. Three religions, one region sacred to all of them including the cities of Jerusalem, Nazareth, and Bethlehem, and one forefather, are instead embroiled in one of the most divisive conflicts of the 21st century. Where did it all go wrong? Tonight, we invited three religious leaders to address this very question. Joining me now are Bishop William Barber, founding director of the Center for Public Theology and Public Policy at Yale Divinity School, Rabbi Sharon Brouse, the senior and founding rabbi of the Los Angeles congregation Ikar, and Imam Imad Enchasi, senior imam of the Islamic Society. Um, I'm sorry, Islamic Society of Greater Oklahoma City and chair of the Islamic Studies Department at the Wimberley School of Religion at Oklahoma City University. Thank you all for being here. I have been excited about and trying to make this conversation happen for quite some time. And so I thank you all. I am going to go ladies first uh, uh, to to our wonderful Rabbi Sharon Browse. And, and I just want to ask you about this because you know, I think the thing that is so jarring about what's happening right now in the Middle East is that it, it, it's a conflict almost among cousins. It's almost like a, a war among cousin religions uh, and peoples. How do you view it? And, and how, what is our way out of people thinking of each other as the other when they're all the children in many ways of Abraham? Thank you so much, Joy, for having me here with the Imam and with my good friend, Bishop Barber. Um, I'm so glad you started us with Abraham. Actually, the Torah portion that Jews all around the world are reading on this Shabbat that we'll read tomorrow morning tells the story of the death of Sarah and the death of Abraham. And I just, it, as you were speaking, it, it makes me think of one important note in that story that happens right at the end of this Torah portion, which is that Abraham's two sons, Yitzchak or Isaac and Ishmael are estranged from each other. They, throughout the course of their life, um, they spend many, many years apart. But after the trauma that Isaac experiences when his father almost sacrifices him on top of the hill, the first thing he does when he steps out of that trauma is he finds his way to his estranged brother. And the two of them 
reconcile with one another and they spend years together and they actually, they, they, they build a different kind of future together. And I find that to be a very heartening message for us. In this time in which it seems like we have these irreconcilable differences, we are cousins, we are family. And what it takes is people who are willing to break script enough to find our way not into war, but to find our way toward one another with open hearts and with a quest and yearning for peace. Yeah. And Imam and Kasi, I think that's beautifully said. Um, and, and I, I want to bring you in on this as well, because, you know, if you think about it, if you do like the sort of 700 years of the Ottoman Empire, all three of these people lived in this region and shared this region together. It is a more recent phenomenon that you've sort of had, you know, the sort of drawing of lines by European nations who decided uh, lines of, of demarcation for nations and sort of inter, you know, war, you know, wars between these groups. But how do you see the future of a, a world in which these regions could return to a state of grace with one another? I'm glad we started with Abraham as well. Um, you know, uh, Muslims are descendant of, of uh, Prophet Ishmael as well. And as the rabbi eloquently said, uh, the two brothers came together towards the end, and they actually buried their father together. Uh, both Ishmael and Isaac came together and buried their father Abraham together. Um, yes, uh, the Ottoman Empire um, and throughout the whole region, Muslim Jews and Christians lived in perfect harmony. As a matter of fact, most of the sciences that we are enjoying nowadays uh, could be traced all the way to Spain, where Muslim Jews and Christians lived together from algebra to algorithm. Uh, those are sciences uh, that uh, brought um, all the all, all the intellectual people together uh, in order to better humanity. Uh, the way forward is for us, as I always kid around when I always say, I said, Jews, Muslim, and Christians are brothers from different mothers, literally <laughs> brothers from yes. different mothers. I think I think the, uh, the the way going forward is to understand. Uh, before we are brothers from different mothers, we are actually human beings. Um, uh, and we are the sons uh, and the daughters of Abraham. And um, our father right now, looking at all this um, family feud, uh, would be probably weeping. Yeah, family feud and mass death and tragic, needless death. Bishop Barber, um, you and I have had this conversation. Uh, I will uh, disclose to folks that we've talked about this on the phone. So now we're going to sort of bring our conversations uh, to real life. I mean, it, Christians, you know, may not understand that in a future in which there is a Palestine, if they visit Bethlehem, that would be in what would be Palestine. It's in the occupied West Bank or, uh, you know, sure. Jesus is of Nazareth. Nazareth is a majority Muslim city. Bethlehem is majority Arab Christian city. And so it's like these sacred places, um, Jerusalem and, and, and Bethlehem and all of these, Galilee, they're located all on top of one another in these regions. They're sacred to all. How do we get to a place where people can recognize each other as, as the imam said, brothers from different mothers? Yeah, we get so trapped in language that's, that, that's just political and not just theological and political. And so, yeah, I talk about Jesus being a Palestinian Jew, but I'm a Christian preacher. But in this moment, what I want to emphasize, as you're saying, and as the rabbi and the uh, imam are saying, the, the moral commitments that we share together. And one of those greatest moral traditions is that every person is created in the imago dei, in the image of God. Every person is a reflection of God. That doesn't have anything to do with the lines we've drawn or who we say people are, all of us. And, 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 the, and the Talmud, for instance, and an Islamic teaching both say 
that to save one life is to save humanity. And Christian New Testament teaches that out of one blood, God created many people. If that's the starting point, and that's why we're speaking pastorally to the world, if that's the starting point, then we have to say an unequivocal no to indiscriminate violence, especially against women, children, and the elderly and the sick. We have to be able to say with moral consistency that what Hamas did on the 7th is wrong and what Netanyahu and the government, not the people of the government, is doing to civilian in Gaza is wrong. And, and if you start there with this imahu dehi, the imago dehi, who we are as a people. And so what we have to do, and there'll be a lot of terms thrown around, but what we ultimately mean, whatever term you use, is you must stop it. Stop what? We must mm-hmm. lift a moral plea to stop murder, stop occupation, stop kidnapping and using how stop using people as pawns. We have to find a way, and, and it's happening, Jews, Christians, Muslims, to stand together. Stop indiscriminate killing. Stop it, stop it, stop it. Because if we don't put a restraint on that, we actually end up destroying the very thing that we want to preserve and defend. And that is recognizing the imago dei, the humanity of all people. That has to be a starting point for any kind of real solutions. Uh, Amen to that. Uh, Rabbi Browse, what would you say to the leaders of this country if you could talk to them uh, about what they could be doing and saying differently about the way they're dealing with what's happening in Gaza and in Israel? Well, it depends if we're talking to the academic leadership, to the political leadership. I mean, I think one of the traps of this time that the bishop is speaking about is there's a kind of false binary that I recognize, Joy, that you're actually trying to break by even bringing the three of us together in this conversation, the four of us together in this conversation. There's this false sense that you're either with the Israelis or you're with the Palestinians. I'm with humanity. My heart breaks for my Jewish family. My heart also breaks for my human family. And so I'm I am deeply, deeply worried about uh, my family's safety, about my Jewish family's safety in Israel and here in the United States. And I'm also deeply worried about the Palestinian cancer patients who wonder if they'll even find safe haven, um, you know, in, in the hospitals in Gaza and the parents who are writing their names on the on the legs. I'm worried about the people who are held, the Israeli Jews who are held hostage. I'm worried about the Thai workers who are being held hostage mm. in Gaza right now. So the first thing I think the leadership needs to do is take a breath and speak more responsibly in this moment because there are literally lives on the line and it feels really good to be tribal in moments like this and to fight for our team and to stand up and scream slogans that rhyme with each other. But what we actually have to do is avoid the dehumanizing rhetoric, which we know will lead to acts of dehumanization to more violence. This is a malignancy in our culture. It's really a sickness. And I'm very worried about the days ahead. I do, in terms of the political leadership, I... I'm very grateful that that the members of the Biden administration have called for a temporary humanitarian pause, which will allow for humanitarian relief to get into Gaza, relief for those families that are really in, in danger for those children, and called for the immediate release of the hostages, the 240 who've been kidnapped from southern Israel. Among them, members of my family, members of my community members, um, including including yeah. many young children and elders, as we know right now. Yeah, indeed. And Imam, Imam, Imam Nkasi, the same question to you. What would you like to see the leadership in our country do and say differently? Well, the solution for this for this issue is going to come from courageous leadership. Um, uh, rabbi Verid, who is the rabbi here of Temple Bene Israel, and myself actually went to uh, the city of Oklahoma City and we stood and we addressed um, uh, the councilmen and women 
um, about the rise in Islamophobia and anti-Semitism. Um, often I would talk to a rabbi Vered right here in Oklahoma City, I say, if it's up to the uh, people of faith, uh, the religious leaders, we could get this one solved. Uh, mm. Political leaders, unfortunately, um, uh, have their uh, their own um, you know political interest in mind, and, and the yeah. language they use uh, all the time is is not the language of reconciliation. I have yeah. four members of my family who have uh, been right. killed in Gaza myself, and 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 I, and, and my my heart also bleed um, uh, uh, to the people who are uh, being kept hostage uh, at this time mm. as well. I think people of faith yeah. have this. Um, in common. Confucius yes. once held the baby on top of a well yeah. and he was about to drop the baby on the, uh, uh, um, uh, drop the baby to his death and everybody gathered, uh, people who were males, females, uh, mm -hmm. faith, without faith and, it, and he said, how many of you will be distressed if I drop this baby in the well and everybody raised their hand and he right. said, thus the human creed. We need a human Amen. creed at this point. Amen. I wish we had more time. Uh, but we, we should do this again before the as we all enter okay. our various holiday seasons. Bishop William Barber, Rabbi Sharon Browse, Imam Imad and Kasi, uh, thank you all so much for such a thoughtful discussion. We'll be right back. Because time is a flat circle, we are once again one week away from a government shutdown, thanks to Republicans, who killed two party-line funding bills and then left for a long weekend, with a House Republican telling NBC News that their party is ungovernable. But never fear, NBC reports that their new speaker plans to release the text of his resolution to continue to fund the government tomorrow, just six days before the deadline. That would set Republicans up for a vote on Tuesday, if they can agree on anything. Republicans have clearly been taking the funding process super seriously, with some members spending the past week trying to reduce the salaries of Biden officials, including White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre, Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg, and Interior Secretary Deb Holland to $1, and defunding Vice President Kamala Harris's office entirely. Real serious governing stuff here, folks. Joining me now is Dean Obadala, host of The Dean Obadala Show on Sirius XM, and David Jolly, former Republican congressman from Florida, who, for I cannot figure out the reason every time I say this, is no longer affiliated with the party. Make it make sense, David. What are they doing? They're trying to, do they, they're not winning these fights to defund the vice president's office and reduce people's salaries. That's what they're doing instead of funding the government. Make it make sense. Yeah, Joy, it's Friday night. Let's be honest. The word idiocy and idiot comes to mind because that's what we're seeing. Look, they all came out of the Republican conference 10 days ago and they were unified and they went to the House floor at an anonymous or uh, unanimous vote for the speaker. But I think they're mistaking unity for victory yes. because they haven't won yes. anything, actually. And that's the real problem here. They're still trying to figure out their own internal dynamic to get internal support for what they will offer. They're ignoring the legislative math that they only have a few votes. They have to work with Jeffries, a Democratic Senate, and Joe Biden. Speaker Johnson and House Republicans are going to lose this fight. The question is, how much pain are they willing to put the country through before they realize yeah. that their humiliation is coming? <laughs> Speaking of infighting, let's talk about a different kind of infighting in the Republican Party. Mm -hmm. Nikki Haley and Vivek Ramaswamy, the hate that hate produced. Let's play the clip. In the last debate, she made fun of me for actually joining TikTok while her own daughter was actually using the app for a long time. So you might want to take care of your family first. Leave my daughter out of your voice. Your adult daughter. The next generation of Americans are using it. And that's actually the point. You have her supporters propping her up. That's fine. Here's the truth. You're just the easy scum. answer.
<laughs> Dean Brown on Brown Crime is way before its time. Your thoughts? I, I think that's my favorite show, GOP Fight Club. I watch it. I could watch it every <laughs> single night. I, Vivek Ramaswamy is so unlikable. He's like the guy in a horror film where the monster gets him, and you're like, "Good, I'm glad he got it." There's nothing redeeming. There's nothing redeeming about Vivek. He's awful. He makes me cheer for Nikki Haley, which is unbelievable. I'm actually on Team Haley in this fight. Let them fight. I enjoy, these two. They're fighting. Who can be second in command on the Titanic? Because that's where this GOP is going with Captain Donald Trump. It's going to sink. I, we want Donald Trump as a nominee at this point. We really do. After Tuesday, nominate Trump. We love it. Thank you. Uh, you know, and, well, nominate Trump, but David Jolly, the risk here is that if it's Trump v. Biden, it might be Trump v. Biden plus Manchin running with no labels, plus uh, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. running on the anti-vax ticket. There's a lot of people running. Um, there's also a lot of polling showing that RFK Jr., He's beating Trump among young voters in key states. Manchin's retirement, it looked to me in his video like he's running. Are there going to be five people on this ballot and who wins that dogfight? There, there could be. And look, the reality is there are more Americans today who identify themselves as not affiliated with the party than, if, than affiliated with the Democratic or Republican Party. And that's important to recognize. But I think the calling in this moment for Manchin and RFK Jr. and Stein and others is, are you willing to risk democracy itself? For your own vanity project, because the system is simply set up for two parties. And you can argue that's yeah. right or wrong, but the infrastructure is set up for two parties. A third party or independent candidate will manipulate that, and you risk reelecting Donald Trump. You really do, unless it's RFK, the anti vaxxer, Republican in sheep's clothing. But if do you really want to risk Donald Trump returning to the White House? Because for that reason alone, avoid a vanity run for the White House, protect democracy, support Joe Biden. Yeah, let's not uh, for, let let Jill Stein go down the memory hole. We're just going to put it up right there. Her mm. margins of victory in Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin were more than the margin of victory for Donald Trump. It's how he got in the first place. At least that's part mm -hmm. of how he got in. I want to play a piece of sound for you, though, because to talk just a little bit about what's happening in Gaza and, 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 and Israel, there was a piece of sound that is so outrageous. I have to play it for you specifically, Dean. This was the response sure. when a Democratic representative in Florida said, asked a question. Take a listen. We are at 10,000 dead Palestinians. How many will be enough? I also, one of my colleagues just said all of them. Wow. One of my colleagues said all of them. One of my colleagues also stated that this is going to dry up their fundraising if we vote on this resolution. I also want that. Like, that's what we've become in this state. Uh, her resolution, I should say, by the way, uh, was calling for a ceasefire. She's Representative Angie mm -hmm. Nixon. Uh, your thoughts. Representative Michelle Saltzman, who is the person who yelled all of them, she says she was talking about Hamas. That's not what I heard. What did you hear, Dean? No, what happens is when you call out people's bigotry, they go, I only mean the bad ones. For years, I've heard, oh, Muslims are really bad. And then no, they're all terrorists. And you confront those people. They go, oh, no, I just meant the people ISIS, Al Qaeda, because you call them out. Look, you know, you just had a great panel with three faith leaders, and the plea was don't lose your humanity. It's my plea from the beginning. We can denounce Hamas for a terrorist attack and also denounce Netanyahu now for his military killing upwards of 4,000 children. Senator Chris Van Hollen last week talked about in the Senate six times more children have been killed in Gaza in the first three weeks of this combat 
than in the entire amount of children killed in the Ukraine during that war. It's not that Russia doesn't have the capability to kill 4,000 children in a month. They made a choice not to. That's a difference. That's why people are calling for a ceasefire. The loss of life is devastating. The world is watching. It's heartbreaking. And I don't know what's going to stop it, but I'm really hoping more Democrats and more Democrats will speak out. A ceasefire doesn't make you pro-Hamas. I don't care what people on the right say. It makes you pro-humanity. And then we can figure out ways to get rid of Hamas without killing innocent Palestinians on the way to do that. Uh, amen to that. Uh, Dean Obadala, David Jolly, thank you both very much. We'll be right back. We didn't have enough time to do who won the week tonight, but I'll tell you who won the week. Women and men who believe in women's right to control their own bodies won big in elections across the country. They won the week. That is tonight's readout. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.